The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so um, uh, let us come back again to uh, dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, and uh, we'll go through the uh, remaining factors. Uh, and I'm not going to spend too much time because uh, I want to come back to the practical issues, uh, which I think are more important. It is practical dependent origination, but you, it takes more effort to draw out the practicalities. Uh, and it's easy to see that in the last noble truth. But anyway, I think it's nice to go through it and get a good feeling for how it works. Uh, so just to uh, recap very briefly, uh, this morning we had a look at the uh, four first factors of a dependent origination, starting with ignorance, avijja, and then going to sankharas, uh, choices, uh, consciousness, vijnana, and then name and form, nama rupa, and how that all holds together. Uh, and uh, the idea there, to kind of what the you can learn from that, is that as you reduce your ignorance, your avijja, gradually, uh, that affects how you live the choices that you make in life. Uh, you start to become wiser in your choices, uh, uh, make more wholesome choices, uh, more motivated by uh, the good uh, qualities, the uh, good motivations, and you abandon some of those bad motivations. Uh, that is kind of the idea behind that. And as you understand where happiness really lies, uh, uh, you, you move, you change your values and your attitudes and your priorities and all of these things. Uh, and eventually you see that the whole idea of choosing is really just a a problem, so you stop choosing and you become peaceful in your meditation practice. That is what the peace of meditation is all about. Uh, when you start to see clearly uh, that uh, happiness is to be found in peace and stillness rather than in all this running around after things. Uh, and then that affects your consciousness, become brighter and brighter, and that leads to higher and higher rebirth, and eventually, actually, it leads to no rebirth whatsoever because the uh, you basically... Um, that stillness, when it comes to the highest point, uh, you realize that the rebirth is not really the, the way forward. We'll come maybe quickly back to the cessation sequence later, but uh, that is roughly how it works. Uh. And then uh, going from there, uh, then uh, uh, now you can imagine yourself, you, have, you are established in a new existence with name and form, uh, with the boundaries and limitations and constraints that exist on that existence. Uh. And uh, within those extrains, constraints, uh, you then have the six sense fields, yeah, the six uh, um, senses, basically. And then you experience the world through those six senses uh, according to the realm that you have been reborn in. Uh, yeah, or sometimes you may only have one sense, like the mind. Uh, not always all the senses are there, uh, but you, you experience something. And then because you experience because they have the six senses, then you experience the world through those senses. Uh, and every time you have an experience through the senses, that's called a contact. You con it's like as if you're contacting the world uh, uh, through those senses. Yeah, You see, you hear, all of these kind of things that come through those senses. It's kind of fairly, uh, uh, fairly straightforward, uh, nothing kind of too... Uh, miraculous about that. Of course, how we contact the world will depend on many different things. Uh, it depends on our uh, conditioning as well as people. Uh, it depends on a lot of things, how that contact actually happens. Uh, uh, but uh, basically, 
we are we contact things and then when you have contact uh, when you experience the world one of the most predominant things that you experience is feeling here uh, feeling here being whether it's good bad or neutral uh, yeah uh, this is one of the most uh, important things in that contact and the reason why it is important is because uh, it is feeling that is the driving force that gives meaning to anything in life uh, so once you have feeling that is where everything else starts to take off if it wasn't for feeling nothing would matter you wouldn't crave for anything nothing would be interesting uh, but feeling is like the fundamental thing that gives meaning to life everything is driven by feeling here uh, that's why we are motivated to do anything really in life uh, because we are driven by this um, this kind of primal thing uh, uh, that uh, you know is um, basically what life is all about in a sense uh, and then you crave according to those feelings uh, you want the good feelings you want to avoid the bad ones uh, yeah it's fairly obvious as well you can see this happening in your own life all the time uh, and the neutral ones they're kind of uninteresting until you reach very high states uh, then they become interesting uh, but uh, essentially we're driven by these feelings uh, and a lot of the path as i mentioned before is to be practiced at this particular juncture between feeling and craving uh, a lot of the you know avoiding uh, arising of all these negative feelings of ill will and all of that avoiding kind of excessive greed and desire this all happens there so here there's a lot of the factors of the path they have to be practiced at this particular point sense restraint uh, um, uh, f mindfulness and full awareness satisampajanya uh, yeah and even just uh, ordinary sila is also to be practiced at this particular point uh, so uh, you uh, you kind of you 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 keep that even mind instead of being uh, being always um, uh, allowing the feelings to be in charge and allow your mind to kind of you know jump around up and down like a yo-yo. Instead, you have this you, you start to gain, gain this evenness of mind. Instead, uh, that's kind of the purpose of this. Uh. And then from that craving, from that tanha comes the uh, the next links, uh. and a lot of these links that we look at now they are basically the same as the early ones where we looked at sankara coming from avijja very similar things that we are seeing here but from a slightly different angle uh, this is one of the geniuses of the buddha is to show basically the same thing from many different angles uh, that kind of opens your eyes makes you see things in a new way so what is the angle here well once you have craving uh, what do we do when we crave? Well, you try to find ways of satisfying that craving. Uh, and uh, this upadana is really what that is about. It's like almost like a strategy or a way to ensure that your cravings will be satisfied in the future. Uh, upadana, as I mentioned before, here it is translated as grasping, I think. Uh, or I can just see a blur, but okay, now it's becoming clear. Yeah, grasping. Uh, and um, uh, But one way of, of talking about Upadana is actually taking up. Adana is to t take hold of something and picking it up. Yeah. So, and taking up is a very nice translation. Picking up or taking up, because we actually take up things both in the literal and the metaphorical sense. Yeah. Literal sense, you you actually grasp onto things quite literally with your hand. But more often, it is metaphorical in the sense that you uh, pick up habits or you pick up things that you do with your life you pick up uh, you know in education you pick up educating yourself you pick up living in a house you pick up a religion you pick up a teaching like buddhism yeah 
you pick up a relationship, whatever it is. All of these things are things that you uh, do in your life so as to ensure that those cravings can be satisfied. Uh, that is really what the point of this is about. And you start to hobbies that you pick up. All of these things are picked up for that reason. Uh, and uh, so this is a very important part of, of life. And once you start doing this, uh, then your life starts to take a very definite shape. Yeah, You start to live a certain life. And this is why if you look at your lives, they tend to be very full. Yeah, They have the pact, you know, you have all of the things that you do. And all of that is because you have picked up certain things that then make you busy and you do those things in a certain way. Yeah. So you pick up things like the, the traditional explanation of upadana that you find in the analysis here is that you pick up uh, four things specifically to grasp four things. You grasp the sensual pleasures, uh, views, uh, precepts and observances and theories of a self. Yeah, Grasping of sensual pleasure is often the, the big one. And a large part of what we do in our life is grasping in this area. And uh, so much of what we do falls within that boundaries of sensual pleasures. Yeah, Even things like going to work, where you uh, try to kind of build, you can't try to make enough money to look after yourself or whatever. Uh, yeah, Or uh, living in a house, taking up living in a house is really about sensual pleasures. Uh, have a place where you can kind of feel safe or you have entertainments, you can sleep well at night, you can make some nice food or whatever. This is what happens in a home, yeah, in a house. Uh, <coughs> and um, a lot of the things that we do in life are the taking up of things that, that have uh, are related to sensual pleasures in one way or another. Uh, uh, but then uh, uh, when you come to Buddhism, it's a bit different. Yeah, well, Why do you become a Buddhist? Well, again, you take this up because you think Buddhism is going to make you happy in one way, but here it is more like taking up a view, because Buddhism implies a particular view of the world, the way of understanding the world. Uh, the idea of rebirth, for example, or kamma, or uh, the idea that happiness is to be pursued by mental training rather than sensual pleasures. Uh, there's some experience there, but it's also to some extent a view of the world that you don't really know about. Uh, so you pick up these views. Uh, these ideas about things, uh, yeah? It comes from craving originally because you crave happiness uh, and then you think Buddhism is going to deliver. So you pick up these views in these various areas. Uh, or you have precepts and observances. is another thing that you pick up. Uh, yeah, sila bhatta. Sila is five precepts. Yeah, you pick up the five precepts and then you grasp strongly uh, those five precepts. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> you grasp them strongly because you you think they're going to lead to something positive. Yeah, if you're a monk, you grasp even more precepts. You hold on to them for dear life, uh, and then see what happens. Actually, you try not to, maybe not for dear life, but you know what I mean. And um, <laughs> then you have the views of self. Yeah, views of self is an important aspect here, and these is like almost like philosophical doctrines. The the view of self is usually the eternalist doctrine or the annihilationist doctrine uh, that you carry on forever, which is kind of the usual religious doctrine in most religions, uh, or that you kind of disappear when you die, bang, you're gone. Uh, the more materialistic or physicalist doctrine, a kind of modern view of things. Uh, but also going back to the time of the Buddha, you pick these things up, yeah? And then when someone says that you're not going to live for 
ever after you die, you argue with them. Why? Because you have picked up this teaching. You hold on to it, you grasp, you attach. Uh, and if someone challenges you, you get really upset and angry. What? There's no rebirth? Yes, there is rebirth. No way, you superstitious Buddhist. Yeah, wha what? You ca how can you call me superstitious? Etc. Etc. This is how we're picking up. Picking up things, that's usually the consequence of picking up things, yeah? You end up with arguing and end up with all these kind of problems. So, so you pick these things up. And uh, so this is how then you get a very definite shape in your life. Your ideas, your views, your, your, the way you live your life, everything falls into place, yeah? Because you have picked these things up and all of these things are important to you. You attach to them to some extent. You grasp hold of them, uh, so you can see here that there is a maybe a problem here. If you grasp onto things too much, uh, it very often leads to problems. Yeah, if you hold on to things that are impermanent, for example, if you hold on to things, you, uh, sometimes you end up arguing, even though you don't really know what you are talking about. Still, you will hold on to it. This is usually usually the case. Uh, yeah, so it leads to kind of has these negative consequences. Uh, grasping onto things that are impermanent is painful because you're going to have to go. Uh, Grasping onto views and things are going to be painful because someone is going to challenge you and say you are stupid or something. <laughs> That's what people do. Yeah, people are pretty harsh sometimes. Uh, just because you have a view doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means it's a view. Huh? Or whatever, yeah? Or even holding onto your sila and then one day maybe your sila is challenged and you make a mistake and then you feel really bad about yourself because you held on to it but you weren't able to live up to it. Uh, so how do we deal with this in a, in a good way? this idea of grasping things. Uh, and uh, one thing, important thing to remember about this idea of grasping and taking up and attachments uh, is that it is unavoidable uh, that you're going to attach to some extent. Uh, yeah, It is not possible to say, I'm going to stop taking things up, I'm going to stop attaching. Uh, attaching is part of uh, what it means to have a sense of self. As long as you have a sense of self, you're going to attach to some extent. Uh, it's only the stream entry that can avoid attachments. Uh, before that, it's part of what life is about, to attach to things. Uh, so don't be too concerned about the fact that you are attaching. Instead, be concerned about what you are attaching to. This is the first step on the Buddhist path, to change your attachments uh, towards something which is more useful. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the first step. Uh, and uh, of these attachments here, uh, you, you, you know, part of this is to kind of reduce our attachments to the sensual world a little bit uh, and then move our attachments a little bit more towards, uh, um, you know, the spiritual practice, uh, towards these kind of things. Uh, so, for example, when it says here that you have the uh, sila, sila bat upadana, the attachment to sila, uh, yeah, it's okay to attach a little bit to sila. If you attach a little bit to being kind, it's okay. Uh, because sometimes if you don't attach to these things, uh, then you will be very hard to follow it through. Uh, so a little bit of attachment is okay. Uh, so just y think about attachment as like a ladder. Yeah, You move up the ladder, there's a higher level of attachment, there's lower levels. Try to avoid the lower levels, uh, and then kind of go, move gradually to the higher levels. Uh, yeah, It's a movement up a ladder. You can't let go all in one go unless you become a stream enter. Uh, so it's a gradual thing, and as you do that, uh, eventually it allows you to let go completely at stream entry. Uh. So sometimes people think, you know, they, for example, let's take a very obvious example. Uh, one of the three fetters for a stream entry is called the sila bhatta paramasa, yeah, the grasping of uh, uh, 
virtue and vows or something like that or precepts and vows so sometimes people think well that means that i need to let go of these things so i can let go of that fetter but actually it doesn't work like that that's not that's that's i think that's the wrong way of thinking about it uh, the point rather is that when you become a stream enter this shows you the result rather than what you're supposed to do yeah you're not supposed to do the giving up of this fetter it is the result of right practice and the right practice is actually strangely enough to hold on to that virtue a little bit and then when you hold on to it eventually you go beyond her this is kind of the idea then when you become a stream mentor then you have let go and the reason you have let go at that point is because you have internalized the sila fully it's part of who you are you cannot really break sila anymore here it's pretty neat isn't it cannot do anything bad must do good and you you know you have no choice in the matter you can make still mistakes but you make very few mistakes when you uh, once you are a stream mentor so this is the how you think about this so it's okay to grasp a little bit uh, but remember to grasp in the right place uh, and then when you grasp in the right place then you will have success on this path uh, and it's okay to grasp a little bit of sensual pleasures as well just gradually gradually you move in the right direction it's okay to grasp some views yeah we say you shouldn't grasp views but i mean you know as a buddhist we do that all the time we grasp the view of rebirth and if someone challenges us we might get a bit upset uh, so just grasp a bit more gently don't grasp too much yeah because then otherwise you end up with arguments and uh, sometimes it's kind of nice to say if someone challenges you say yeah i don't actually know you know yeah maybe there is rebirth maybe there isn't i think there is rebirth but uh, i don't really know it that's okay to say that uh, yeah, and then uh, kind of argument is diffused straight away. There's no, there's no problem there. So uh, that is just a very little bit about upadana, uh, the idea of grasping and attaching to things, and it is a natural result of craving. Yeah, holding on to things, and then, as I said before, your life takes a very certain direction at that point. Your upadana, the thing you attach to, tend to revolve around a certain area they tend to be about the sensual world for example yeah most people attach to things that relate to sensuality then when you move towards the spiritual path you attach a little bit more to spiritual things uh, yeah to ideas such as uh, uh, living well having a pure mind a bit of meditation practice perhaps it's certainly the idea of kindness uh, etc uh, so you move more towards that uh, so you have a different uh, uh, your mental world is slightly different uh, because of what you value in your life uh. so and that becomes the bhava the existence yeah you exist in a certain way you exist with certain attachments uh. and the bhava to know what your bhava is the best way to do that is often just to see what happens in your mind when you meditate yeah especially when you go on a retreat you have a few days to really kind of calm down and to get rid of the more superficial things and when the superficial noise calms down what is left in your mind at that point in other words these are the deeper habits of the mind yeah if you look at those deeper habits what it is that you think about that is basically your bhava yeah the things that you tend to come back to again and again and you will see that that bhava obviously varies a little bit it's not absolutely constant but uh, there will be a tendency yeah sometimes you think about work or you think about your family you think about whatever it is uh, and if you think about that a lot in your meditation as well uh, then that is where really where you are at that is where your mind is uh, that is your bhava yeah 
And uh, so that gives you, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you don't have to feel bad about that if that's the case. It's you know that's just natural that people should think about these things. Uh, but it gives you a sense for where you are at, where your practice is at. Uh, you are still, uh, you're still kind of stick stuck to the sensual world. Yeah, that's really what it means. Uh, yeah, the mind is stuck there. Uh, that's why it goes back to these things. Uh, why it has an interest to these things. Uh, but as you practice the spiritual path more uh, as you're having some success in your meditation practice uh, you're becoming more peaceful you are enjoying the peace you're enjoying the gladness of living well and all of these things uh, then you will find that actually your mind is interested in that and when it's interest in that uh, uh, your mind goes to that peace and that quietness in your meditation yeah now your bhava is different because your mind is moving towards something else uh, it is moving towards all these positive qualities uh, you can see that, yeah. What, 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 wh whether your mind is kind of leaning towards this or not. Again, by look, seeing what you, what you are thinking about or not thinking about uh, in your meditation practice, uh, gives you a very good idea what is happening inside of you. Uh. So, uh, this is your bhava. Very sim. This is like kamma, similar to the kamma we we're talking about before, or vinyana, the level of your consciousness. Yeah, your bhava is basically the level of that consciousness that you have. Uh. And if you then, if you have a very strong inclination of the mind then when you die that is the inclination that will take over yeah when you die you will tend to let go of all the superficial things all that remains in the mind is that particular inclination that you see here when you sit down and then that inclination that level of the consciousness of the mind will be what carries on into your next life jati comes from that bhava that state of existence yeah you can see how it all kind of is kind of nice and neat yeah it fits together quite uh, quite nicely uh, and this is how that whole thing kind of works uh. so our job then is to kind of lift up that bhava a little bit yeah make make us more kind of inclined towards uh, uh, the peace the quietness the uh, joy in the mind all of these kind of things uh. that is what this uh, path really then is about uh. and then that leads to a better rebirth and eventually you kind of go, you blow the scales completely, and there's no kind of rebirth. You just go beyond the whole thing. That's kind of the idea eventually here. So I'm, I'm going through this fairly fast because uh, uh, I want to move on to more practical, even more practical things. Uh, but uh, I, th I think this is all quite interesting personally, and I have, you know, uh, reflected on dependent origination quite a lot because I always felt the need to understand how this sequence actually works. So. And then you are born. Yeah, you get reborn in this, this uh, whatever it is. Uh, and then when you are reborn, what happens? Uh, old age, uh, illness, sickness, <laughs> death. Yeah, being united from with what you don't like, being separated from what you like, not getting what you want. Uh, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, or whatever it is called uh, in the suttas. Uh, that is the consequence of being born. So birth is a big problem in Buddhism, uh, and that happens as a consequence. Uh, so, there you are. That's a, a brief overview of dependent origination. If anything I have said, I've gone a bit too fast to really kind of draw out all the implications and make it very clear. But uh, if there's anything that you uh, are not clear about, please feel free to ask and we will take, take those questions uh, uh, this evening here. Now, what I would like to do is uh, to move on to the uh, next sutta and uh, uh, I want to 
read out this sutta because uh, not because it is very easy uh, sutta it's, it's one of the it's very it's a profound sutta as always the profound suttas can be understood on one level it's not necessarily hard to understand what is difficult is always to understand all the implications yeah that's the hard part uh. so this uh, sutta is uh, interesting in a number of ways uh, because uh, uh, if you look at buddhist history uh, and you look at uh, the um, uh, kind of debates that have been going on over the centuries uh, this sutta has of often been very uh, a core part of many of those debates you know one of the famous buddhist philosopher uh, is a monk called nagarjuna and they're very famous in mahayana buddhism but um, it, it's not clear that he actually was a mahayana buddhist there's some arguments whether he was a mahayana buddhist or he was more like a early buddhist yeah but he often used this particular sutta or he used a a Sarvastivadin version of the sutta. Every all the schools had different versions of the sutta, so he would use Sarvastivadin version, which is very similar to the Pali version. There's a couple of interesting differences, uh, but it's very very similar. Uh, so uh, so it ha so for that reason it has a kind of a long history, yeah, of uh, which makes it fascinating to understand what this uh, sutta uh, is about, uh, and uh, in. Uh, uh, you find this, for example, some of the arguments that have existed between the various schools. Uh, there is a whole book in the Theravada Abhidhamma, which is about those arguments. It's called the Katavattu. Uh, Katavattu is about the, the various arguments. And there you find the arguments about uh, uh, you know, whether Dhammas exist or not, uh, yeah, whether things exist in the past, present and future, which is the Sarvastivadin doctrine, uh, and they argue about that. Uh, you find arguments about whether there is such a thing as the Antara Bhava, Bhava arguments about that. Uh, and of course, the, uh, because it is a Theravadan book, then the Theravadan point of view is always right. Uh, yeah? This is what you find in the Theravadan book. Yeah? <laughs> it's to be expected. Uh, but always useful to compare it to the suttas, uh, because sometimes you get this feeling that the Theravadans actually got it wrong. Yeah, it doesn't really match with the suttas. Uh, so it's useful to remember that Theravada is not the same necessarily as the Buddha's word. Uh, these may be different. Theravada is a school. Theravada is a particular interpretation of the word of the Buddha, whereas the word of the Buddha may not necessarily be the same as the Theravadan orthodox interpretation. Uh, that's an important uh, point to remember here, yeah, because then you, uh, your mind becomes a bit more open to alternative possibilities. Uh. Very often, the Theravada Orthodox position is 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 fine, it's good, yeah, no problem with it. But occasionally, it might be a little bit uh, different, uh, which is fascinating here. Yeah. So anyway, so let's have a look at this uh, uh, Kachana Gotta Sutta. There's a monk called Kachana Gotta, and. Um, uh, this is what happens uh, when he visits the Buddha. Uh, so this is at uh, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya 15. 15 no, that's can't, that must be wrong. It should be 12.15, not 15.15. Not sure what's happened there. Uh, something uh, it's, in, it's in the Nidana Sangyutta. It should, should, it should say SN 12.15, not 15.15. Uh, so uh, some... Uh, some some Mara creeping into the <laughs> suttas here. <laughs> so this is how it goes. At Savati. Then the venerable Kachanagotta went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and said to him, Sir, 
they speak of this thing called right view. How is right view defined? Yeah, so we're still kind of dealing with right view here. This is another way of thinking about right view. So uh, for this reason, fits in very well with a kind of overall theme of understanding things in the right way. And the Buddha replies, Kachana, this world mostly relies on the dual notions of existence and non-existence. What does that mean? And what that means, first of all, the notion of existence is the same thing as the eternalist view. Yeah, yeah, because in um, uh, this, remember, this comes really from the Indian society at the time and the Brahmanical teaching and the various religions. And the idea, the religious ideas have always been based around two things. Either things exist in an absolute sense, yeah? In other words, if something exists absolutely, it means that it is eternal. It will have to carry on. It cannot be destroyed, yeah? So that is the eternalism. It is the idea of existence. But then you have the idea of non-existence, which is the idea that things get annihilated or they get wiped out when you die. And that is, uh, uh, was an idea that existed already at the time of the Buddha. And it's in these days, it's a fairly common view around the world. Yeah, It's kind of interesting how uh, these days people take a certain pride in being annihilationist. Everything comes to an end when you die. And I think this is a very modern view. Yeah, We have kind of defeated the Christian church, especially in the, in the Western world. We defeated the Christian church, shown, shown up that Christianity doesn't really work. Things are not eternal. Yeah, Things just get annihilate, annihilated. Yeah, This is the right way to think about things. Uh, but actually, it's not a modern view at all. It has existed since the time of the Buddha, at the very least. Yeah, there are people at that time who had exactly that view. So sometimes we, we think that we are kind of advanced, but actually we're not really advanced at all. We're just the same as they were two and a half thousand years ago. And if it existed two and a half thousand years ago, it probably existed before that. It probably existed, has it probably existed as long as humanity has existed. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, things just kind of carry on, the same old things. Uh, and you think that you are, every generation think that they are really advanced. Uh, but uh, sometimes you, you wonder how advanced you really are here, uh, especially when it comes to things like the spiritual path. Uh. So uh, I think a bit of humility goes a long way, actually. Uh, but uh, it's hard to be humble. So um, so this is uh, the notions, yeah, the notions, these ideas, these are views of existence and non-existence, eternalism and annihilationism, that you get annihilated when you die. Yeah. And the world relies on this. What does that mean? Well, what is the world? Well, the world is just like humanity, yeah, people, humanity. Just like you might say the whole world thinks in English. When you say the whole world thinks something, you mean all of humanity. Uh, in the same way, the Pali word loka is used in exactly that same uh, sense uh, uh, throughout the sutta. It's a, very, it's a very flexible word that can be used in many different ways. Uh. So relies on it, it, the Pali word is nisaya. Yeah, it literally means like leans on. It is something that you uh, rely on for your, uh, almost like for your sense of identity, yeah, for your happiness. 
Uh, just like we said before, you have the upadana, you have the craving, you take things up. And when you take them up, then you rely on that view to give you uh, that good feeling that you feel safe, you feel secure, your identity is okay. Yeah? And because it makes you feel secure, because you have a view of the world, that is why you feel really challenged when someone challenges you. That's why you defend it, because uh, otherwise you have nowhere to stand. You kind of, you know, everything is kind of shaking here, and uh, you don't have anything to hold on to anymore. So you actually rely on these things for your very existence, for your feeling of well-being. Uh, these are part of the upadana that makes us, uh, you know, makes our kind of uh, fulfills our cravings and and all of these kind of things. Uh, so this is quite deep for that reason. This is why it is so hard often, you know, when once people have a particular viewpoint, uh, if someone is convinced that there is a creator God, uh, very hard to convince people that they might be wrong. Uh, yeah, often they will hold on to that view very, very strongly. Uh, there is a creator God, but maybe there isn't. Uh, have you considered that? No, don't want to consider it. Uh, that's kind of beyond my, beyond the possibilities of things. Uh, so this can become very, very powerful views. Uh, but the idea of annihilation can also become very powerful. Uh, yeah, if you get a some kind of, uh, you know, athe atheist who is, I used to be pretty atheistic myself before I became a Buddhist, but uh, you get some atheist who is absolutely convinced everything goes, you know, disappears when you die, uh, then again, it's also very hard to convince people otherwise. Uh, so these things are very close to us. Uh, hard to let go. We depend on them quite literally for our sense of identity, etc. So um, the world, everyone relies on these things. It has always been like that, yeah? That these are the two extremes and these are the two things you can expect to see in religion and philosophy and everything, yeah? these two things. And it's very rare to find a teaching which goes beyond these two things. And this is what makes Buddhism so exceptional. It does not rely on either of these things. Uh, it's, all, it's pretty much unique in the world not to rely on either of these. Uh. So then uh, the Buddha says, uh, uh, and this is the this is the Buddhist viewpoint. Yeah, but when you truly see the origin of the world with right understanding, uh, you won't have the notion of non-existence regarding the world. Uh. And when you truly see the cessation of the world with right understanding, uh, you won't have the notion of existence regarding the world. So, <laughs> first of all, yeah, to understand this, what does world mean in this context? And again, as I just mentioned before, world is a very flexible term in the suttas, just like in English, yeah, world is really flexible. It can mean so many different things. It can mean the universe, it can mean the, uh, the, the, the earth, it can mean maybe the humanity, it can mean my little world, it can mean anything. Yeah, it's a very broad idea. It's exactly the same thing in Pali. The word loka also is broad, almost in exactly the same way. Yeah? So when we use the idea world here, it means our personal world, yeah, my world, my experience. Uh, yeah, experience is like your uh, the way that the world appears from your point of view. And really, in Buddhism, that's the only world that really matters. Uh, I mentioned yesterday the idea of the Rohitasa Sutta found in the Anguttara Nikaya 4s, uh, number 45, 445, something like that. Uh, and uh, that Rohitasa Sutta quite specifically says that the world. Uh, the origin of the world, the end of the world, and the path leading to the end of the world is found in this fathom-long body with its consciousness and perception. Yeah, 
So the Buddha makes it very clear that from his point of view, the world is our personal experience, uh, is how we see things and, and the, the, our perception of things. That is the real world. Uh, if that actually is all there is, uh, there is no answer to, uh, there's no answer in the suttas, but uh, maybe that's all, even all there is, just our personal experience of things. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so, but the point here is that this is what matters. Yeah. So the Buddha is here saying, if you see the origin of the world, so in other words, what if you see the origin of experience yeah, with right understanding, what does that mean? And what that means is if you, if you see that uh, craving gives rise to rebirth, that's the origin of experience. Yeah? You, you, you get reborn, experience carries on even when you die. So the origin of the world is every time you get reborn, the world re-originates uh, and you carry on and you continue with experiencing things. Uh, that experience is the world re-arising every time, uh, continuing on, uh, continuing on, uh, yeah, re-establishing itself in a new realm. Uh, you see the origin of the world with right understanding. This is the insight of the stream entry when you understand dependent originations. Basically, it means understanding dependent origination. That's what it's all about. Uh, the origin of the world through the rebirth process. And because you see that origin of the world, that origin of experience uh, through the rebirth process, uh, you cannot, you, you don't believe in annihilation anymore. Annihilation becomes impossible. Yeah, this, You won't have the notion of non-existence about the world. Because non-existent means that everything comes to an end when you die. Well, you have seen that that is not the case. When, when you die, you just carry on because you still have craving. As long as you have craving, you will carry on. So annihilation must be false. Yeah, It's just logical because you see the origin of things. That is one side of the argument. Yeah, So you no longer believe in annihilation. Annihilation is wrong. You know that much because the world originates. Then is the other side of the argument. Yeah. But when you truly see the cessation of the world with right understanding, in other words, the cessation of the world is again the ending of personal experience. So when you become an arahant, yeah, then when you die, there is no origination anymore. The world does not carry on. The world instead comes to cessation, it comes to an end. And when you become a stream enter, you understand that this path, this practice, leads to that cessation of the world. Yes, you have you know that such, such a thing as the cessation of the world must happen if you practice in the right way. You have seen this again with your own insight. So because of that, you can no longer believe in eternalism. You know that eternalism must be false because eternalism means that whenever you die, you will carry on forever afterwards. But you know, no, that's not true. Whether you carry on or not depends on certain causes and conditions. It is not absolutely one way or the other way. It depends on how you live and what you do and the spiritual path that you practice. Yeah, so then because of that, you will no longer have that notion of existence in regard to the world. These are the two opposites, the two endpoints, and both of them are false. So what is true then? Well, what is true is dependent origination. Dependent origi origination is that middle way between these two, these two things. Uh, and this is kind of where, uh, what this, why this is included among the suttas on dependent origination. Uh, does it make sense to anyone? Uh, sense to everyone? Yeah, okay. Everyone is happy with that? Okay, good. Uh, yeah. So uh, one thing is to understand it intellectually, of course. Uh, 
but uh, down the track you can imagine seeing this yeah with your kind of direct insight that's when it really hits you bang yeah and then it, it can, that's when it gets really interesting of course uh, because then you really know that this is true uh. so but even intellectually you can understand what is happening here uh. it is understandable uh. but uh, it's kind of fascinating this is the really depth of buddhism yeah this is this is kind of what the buddha discovered uh. this is the difference between buddhism and any other religion and philosophy uh, because all other religions and philosophies uh, they assume a self uh, why? Because it is impossible not to assume a self, because it's uh, uh, it's there unless you have penetrated it and seen for yourself. Uh, it is impossible to step out of that framework. That framework is something you carry with you. It's part of your psychology, part of who you are. Uh, you can't avoid that. Uh, so because of that, you're always bound by that sense of self. Uh, and you know, you you read the suttas. It's a you always have to keep this in mind when you read the suttas because sometimes the suttas only make sense when you understand that this is the background and the framework for these things. Uh, so, for example, you have the famous ten unexplained questions in the suttas. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the Tathagata exists after death. The Tathagata does not exist after the Tathagata. Both exists and does not exist after death. Uh, Okay, I don't know what that means. Anyway, that the target neither exists nor does not exist after death. It, this is kind of Indian logic. It's very, it's kind of, it's a different logic that we have that than we kind of have in the, uh, well, West, West, the Western world is called Aristotelian logic. Yeah, it comes from the kind of the ancient Greeks. Uh, they only things are either right or wrong. Uh, in India, things are have this fourfold way of looking at things, which is very interesting. Yeah, so you ask these questions. Yeah. And, but the problem is that these questions, uh, they are arose out of the Indian culture prior to Buddhism. Uh, and because they arose out of the culture, uh, they all assume a self uh, to begin with. Uh, yeah? So when you said that Tathagata does not exist after death, it assumes this idea of annihilation. Uh, if you say that I he exists after death, well, you assume the eternalist doctrine. If you say he both exists and does not exist, uh, don't don't know what that means, but anyway, it's, it's 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 some sort of combination of those things, yeah. And then neither one nor the other is also some kind of weird combination of these things. Uh. So um, and so that is the problem, and that's why the Buddha don't, doesn't answer these questions. Uh, it's important to understand why he doesn't answer these things. He doesn't answer because uh, the assumption is wrong. You cannot answer something if the basic assumption is wrong. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's like uh, you know, you ask someone how how often do you play frisbee? Yeah. Well, actually, if you don't play frisbee at all, you can't answer that question. Yeah, you, you, I never. You know, how often? One day a week, two days a week? Well, actually, it's a, you, the wrong assumption that I even play frisbee in the first place. You don't play frisbee. End of story. Yeah. So, um, and this is the the point here, yeah? and this is why this teachings is so different. And this is often when you read the suttas, you have to keep that in mind. They only make sense through that kind of framework, yeah? understanding the difference of the Buddhist outlook compared to the outlook at that time so anyway let's let's move on the world is for the most part shackled by attraction grasping and insisting here i would say by rather than two it has two in here i i, br I brought this up with uh, bhante sujato recently and, uh, and he sort of agreed with me that that probably was a better translation so um and um um yeah we are bound by all of these things uh, shackled by them uh, 
But if, when it comes to all of this attraction, grasping, mental fixation, insistence, underlying tendency, basically when it comes to all of these attachments, yeah, that's basically what it means, uh, if you don't get attached, you don't grasp, you don't commit to a notion of a self, uh, you will have no doubt or uncertainty uh, that what arises is just suffering arising, uh, and what ceases is just suffering ceasing. Uh. Your knowledge about this is independent of others. Uh. Again, this is like uh, <laughs> this is like profound Buddhism. Yeah, if you have no n commitment to the notion of a self, in other words, you have become a stream enter or you become an arahant or whatever, uh, that commitment to the self is gone. Uh, and because you don't have that commitment, well, you don't grasp or attach to these ideas anymore. Uh, you don't. You know that uh, you know eternalism. Annihilationism is wrong. There's no attachment. And because you don't have any attachment to that, what you see, you just see the five aggregates coming into existence in one life and then dying again at the end of that life and re-arising in the future life. And those five aggregates, Sankitena, Panchupadana, Kanda, Dukkha, they in brief, they are Dukkha. So what is it that arises? It's Dukkha that arises when the five aggregates come into existence. It's only Dukkha arising, Dukkha passing away. <laughs> This is why not so many people become Buddhists. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they <laughs> Buddhism, yeah, dukkha arising, dukkha passing away, five, five aggregates coming into existence. That's all there is, uh, just dukkha arising and passing away. So um, very hard to see, and uh, the reason it is so hard to see is because of that uh, uh, self, and that self has to take one of the aggregates uh, as it's ident identify with one of the aggregates as the only things that it can identify with uh, and because it identifies with those, th those things uh, it cannot see them as dukkha uh, yeah a self by definition must be something pleasurable uh, usually uh, i don't know maybe it is possible to make it into dukkha but uh, it's normally the idea of happiness and the sense of self they go together uh, so uh, you uh, that's why it is impossible to see through, yeah, because you will identify with these five khandas, and as long as you identify with them, you will see happiness in them. Uh, you have to, first of all, go through and uh, get rid of that sense of identity. Then it is possible to see these things in this particular way. Uh, so you have to be a stream entry, first of all. Uh, and your knowledge about this is independent of others. Uh, yeah, this is uh, one of the nice things about being a stream enter uh, is that you become independent of the world. Uh, you start doing things uh, that um, uh, you don't need a teacher anymore. You know what the teachings are. Uh, uh, you don't need to... Uh, it can still be helpful to have a teacher, but it's not really required anymore uh, because you have seen what is going on. You understand the path, you understand the Four Noble Truths and all of this, uh, and you are independent of others. Uh. And this is kind of nice. You know, if you want to look at... Uh, I, we talked about the other day about who are the stream mentors and arahants in the world. Uh, and uh, you know, I said that, well, one way of looking at that is if you, you look at their qualities, uh, yeah, are they consistently kind? Are they good people? Do they, I don't, they lacking in defilements? They have clarity of mind and all of these kinds of things. Uh, and that is one way of thinking about it. Another, another way of looking at it uh, is that they are independent, very independent people. Uh, yeah, they don't really need anyone else to agree with them. Uh, they kind of go their own way. Yeah, if the whole world says go go to the right, they might go to the left. Uh, they don't care what anyone else thinks. Uh, it's kind of 
it's neat, isn't it? Uh, because most of us, we are kind of we we always think about what everyone else thinks. Uh, oh, what do they think? Uh, go that way. Hmm, maybe that's right. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit uncertain now because everyone is going there. Maybe I have to follow. Yeah, this is how people normally think. It's very hard to be the only one who goes this way. Yeah, everyone else is wrong. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I know. Okay, I go this way. Yeah. It sounds almost arrogant, doesn't it? Uh, the whole world is wrong except for me. Ha, I know the truth. Uh, it sounds like you're really full of yourself. Yeah, really absolutely full of yourself. But uh, actually, this is what happens when you see, if you really see the truth in a deep way, you're not full of yourself at all. In fact, you're very humble. And yet, you have the inner strength to go your own way. Why? Because you know what is right. Uh, and this, so this is one way you can judge uh, whether someone might be a, a, a aria, a stream or not. How independent are they here? Yeah. And those people that I know, who I think... You know, I, I feel as a good reason, good grounds for being noble ones. They have precisely that character. They go, they really do. They're very independent. Uh, and if all their mates say, "Don't ordain bikunis," but you know it's right, then you still ordain bikunis, uh, bikunis, because you know it's right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's just one example. It, it doesn't prove anything, but it's kind of a, you know, it's an interesting point uh, because you you feel that what is the right thing to do is the right thing, and if nobody else agrees, well, that's their problem. Uh, and that's kind of uh, how how you do things. Uh, so, um, and uh, th this doesn't mean that you don't take into account harmony, you don't take into account other factors. Of course you do. You, you, you still want to, you know, do things in the right way. Uh, but in the end, if you really have to, you can be completely independent of others. Uh, this is one of the, the powers of stream entry. And this is also one of the great powers of the path, yeah? That as you practice the Noble Eightfold Path, each one of us becomes more independent. Uh, you become less reliant on other people for validation because you know you're doing the right thing. Uh, you become less uh, reliant on others for your happiness because you have your own inner strength and happiness. Uh, it actually makes you independent. Independence is a very useful thing in this world. Uh, the more dependent you are on others, uh, the more liable you are to be taken advantage of and suffer because of that dependence. Uh, so being free of dependence is actually very, very useful. Uh, and I'm sure you all can relate to that, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, so this is one of the things that people often underestimate, the, the independence that you get from practicing this path in the right way. So this is how right view is defined, yeah. That middle way between existence and non-existence. Uh, all exists uh, is one opposite or one extreme. Uh, all does not exist is the other opposite. Uh, Avoiding these two opposites, the realized one teaches uh, uh, by the middle. There's, there's no way there, just middle, by the middle. What is that middle? Dependent origination. Uh, all exists, yeah? Sabbang uh, ati. This is uh, uh, just another way of saying eternalism, because sabbang ati is like, a, it's just a the way the philosophy, philosophy was at that time, that all exists is equivalent to eternalism. All, all that really matters is your personal experience and, and the sense of self and Brahman. Brahma is like the, the whole universe, yeah? And then there's all the kind of the, the, um, sup the um, superficial changes and things, but Brahman is the underlying reality, which is the all. And all that exists really means that the self, the Atman and the Brahman kind of come together and that is all there is. This exists eternally. Or this all does not exist at all and it kind of everything just is destroyed when you die. That's annihilationism. It's a curious way of putting it. Yeah, all exists. 
but that is kind of how that philosophy at the time was uh, was expressed uh, so you have to kind of understand a bit about the background uh. so then the middle way which is then this uh, beautiful dependent origination yeah where everything depends on each other uh, and one thing leads to the next one uh, and that is how this is uh, how this is explained uh. and um, uh, again the uh, idea of this dependent origination yeah the way that it uh, works and the way that it actually explains this particular thing it really uh, depends on the third and the fourth factor uh, of dependent origination the third factor being consciousness and vinyana the fourth one being uh, nama rupa or name and form in other words all the other aspects of personality apart from consciousness uh, the idea that these depend on each other uh, so consciousness is not an independent entity in the world. Uh, this is kind of the point there. It depends on these other factors, like these sheaths of reed leaning against each other, uh, or sheaths of straw, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, because consciousness is not an independent thing, uh, it relies on other conditions for it, its existence. Uh, it means that it cannot be eternal, because these other conditions will decide whether it's eternal or not. Uh. So there's a mutual conditionality be between condition between uh, vinyana and amarupa is like the hallmark of this Buddhist teachings, uh, and it is the uh, uh, the hallmark of this uh, alternative viewpoint, which is neither annihilationist nor eternalist. So, if you come to your, you know, this is kind of the cessation mode of dependent or origination we're coming to now, in a sense. So, if you uh, come, you have given up all uh, avijja, yeah, and uh, when you give up all avijja then there is no craving anymore for existence or for sensuality because there is no craving for existence or sensuality because you know there's no happiness to be had there so you give it all up yeah it means that you will not no longer project yourself into the future yeah? you will no longer make choices or sankaras uh, that uh, actually relate to the future you will no longer be looking for that existence looking for sensuality yeah, yeah? instead you will just be peaceful yeah? Yeah, you know, sankharas, in fact, are a problem. Uh, uh, all these choices are just a thing that irritates the mind, uh, and being peaceful is much better. Uh. So because you have no interest in anything, consciousness is no longer stationed anywhere. The station of consciousness, you know, where this very bright uh, means that you are kind of holding on to that level. Yeah, so this, if consciousness is stationed in a low-level animal realm, that is where the consciousness is holding on, the human realm, the deva realm, the brahma-loka, whatever it is, uh, Consciousness is stationed there, but once, when all interest in those things is gone, uh, consciousness isn't stationed anywhere anymore. Uh, yeah, it is not stationed. It doesn't relate to any level of samsaric existence. Uh, gone completely beyond that. Uh, because it's gone completely beyond that, uh, when you die, uh, there is no. It doesn't relate to any level in samsara, so it just stops. Uh, yeah, there's nothing to drive you forward anymore. There's no sankaras to project, project you into the future. You have no interest in all of that, uh, and it just comes to stop uh, because uh, uh, it doesn't find a footing in nama rupa, as it says in the suttas. Uh, consciousness doesn't um, it is not, not doesn't have an inclination to any n uh, type of name and form, uh, and because there's no inclination there, uh, there's no holding on to that. Uh, consciousness just comes to a stop instead. Uh, because that support structure, Namarupa and Vijnana, is no longer there. So Namarupa is gone, Vijnana collapses as well, uh, and it doesn't uh, carry on. Uh. This is roughly how it works. Uh. And uh, 
and that is really what this uh, Kachanagota Sutta is, is about in a, in a deep kind of way here. Don't worry too much about it. Yeah, these are very deep aspects of the uh, Buddhist path. Uh, and uh, some of you may find this interesting. Some of you may find it, uh, I don't know how you find it, maybe boring, maybe scary, maybe maybe worrisome, maybe, you know, whoa, I don't sure I want to be a Buddhist anymore. I don't know. I <laughs> but so don't, don't take it too seriously because these things, often they can seem scary from a theoretical perspective. But from a practical perspective, all of these things are actually very beautiful. Uh, remember what I was talking about the other day, that the way to understand the cessation of things, the way to understand impermanence uh, through your personal experience uh, is just to carry on in your meditation and see that when things become peaceful, when things start to cease, uh, it's a very pleasant experience. Yeah, Things cease, wow, I feel so much better now. And as you, when you see that, you understand that this process actually is a very, very pleasant and very beautiful thing when it happens in reality. In theory, it may sound terrible, but in reality, it is so marvelous. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? So be careful with the theory because it may lead you astray here. Yeah, go with the experience, what it actually feels like, and then you will know that you are on the right track. Yeah? So come back to the practical things. The, the reason I like to read it out is because it is part of the Buddhist teachings and... Uh, it is, in my opinion, is very interesting, and hopefully some of you will, will find it the same. And it will gives you a broader view, a more full view of what Buddhism is about and how it actually works. Uh, and that can be very, very, very useful to understand, you know, how this uh, this actually is. Uh, and uh, because uh, I, I don't know about you, but for me, kind of confidence and faith comes in part from having a proper understanding of these teachings. Uh, so that is the uh, Kachana Gotta Sutta, and uh, I'm going to leave uh, the second noble truth uh, at that particular point. And uh, uh, tomorrow morning we will have a very brief look at the third noble truth. I'm not going to talk too much about that, maybe one session or so, and then we come back to the path. And I'm going to talk about the path in more detail, uh, because that is really, to me, the most important part, because uh, that tells you. Uh, what you have to do and how we actually move forward on these things. Uh, so that is uh, uh, it for now. Uh, please keep on enjoying yourself and then we'll uh, see you back again this evening at 6 o'clock or thereabouts. Uh, 6 o'clock. <laughs>